0: Please turn in your Bible to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. If you're needing to use and would like to use one of those Bibles in front of you, the Blue Pew Bible, you'll find the passage on page 923, Acts 15. In 1876, a group of writers published a series of essays called the Federalist Papers which sought to rally the new American colonies around agreement that the Constitution and a Republican form of government could unite them. One writer, James Madison, who wrote Federalist Paper Number 10, saw this need and contributed to rallying the people around the Constitution because... Of the prevalence of so many existing disagreements among the people that made up those original colonies. Listen to what Madison writes about the state of society and disagreements in those early days of our country. A zeal for different opinions concerning religion, concerning government, and many other points, as well as speculation as a practice. An attachment to different leaders ambitiously contending for preeminence and power or to persons of other descriptions whose fortunes have been interesting to the human passions have in turn divided mankind into parties, inflamed them with mutual animosity and rendered them much more disposed to vex and oppress each other than to cooperate for their common good. Sound familiar? Doesn't seem like those particular struggles have changed much in 150 years. So the question that James Madison was posing and seeking the answer is one that I'll pose again. Can we remain a united people if we lack major agreement? That is a relevant question. Let me illustrate what I mean by the prevalence and the potential danger of disagreement that comes from lacking a unifying agreement. I heard a story this week of a person recently who was going to have a staff lunch with several people and this particular person threw the entire staff lunch into the trash Before anybody could eat it. Because it was purchased from a company that didn't share that individual's ideology. That's just one. One story among many that you could probably bring to the table. Disagreement is threatening to dismantle our nation. And it is not the fact of our disagreement. So much as it is the substance and the strength of our disagreements. Everyone disagrees about some things, of course. But as we disagree, we are finding less commonality with which to agree. And the more commonality vanishes from us, the more important our differences become to us. I personally struggle to identify the main thing that we can agree on culturally. Should it be freedom? But do we agree on what freedom means? Should it be liberty? But do we agree what that liberty is for or who should enjoy it? We seem as a society to have lost the ability to prioritize what is most important. To agree on that and then work through our minor disagreements. This triumph of minor disagreements may, as James Madison feared, may end up breaking our country. Or we may find a way to rally upon around major agreement. I think the same potential always exists in the church. There are preloaded definitions, distinctions, and differences that we each bring into our gathering that, if we choose, could be used to weaken the bonds of our unity Minor positions that if made to be major will potentially hurt our witness. How do we avoid going the way of our culture on this? Thankfully, we have history. We have history to teach us a different way. And we began studying that history that we were given in God's word earlier this year in the first half of the book of Acts. And so we come back to it. We resume our study of Acts this morning in Acts 15. And Lord willing, we will go through the rest of this book before the end of this year. Let me catch us up to speed on where we've been. Acts 1 to 14 tells us how the early church began with Jesus sending his disciples with the Holy Spirit to witness to his death and resurrection. As they did, people responded in repentance and faith. The church is born and grows. There were various external opponents to this movement and potential internal disruptions. But thus far, God is exhibiting his power and preserving his church. Another significant development happening in the church thus far in Acts is the inclusion of the Gentile people. Non-Jewish people. In Acts 10... The apostle Peter is given a vision from the Lord that showed him that God's plan included not just salvation of Jews who came to know Christ, but Gentiles. And since then, in Acts, the gospel is going out and saving many non-Jewish people. Although the Christian movement began largely among Jewish converts, that was about to be eclipsed by the broader work that God was doing among the Gentiles. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts chapter 15, and I'll read verse 1 to 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So the church is a growing church made up of Jews and Gentiles. As Gentiles are being added to the church, the church has to start grappling with what it means to be God's people. For centuries, the nation of Israel had understood themselves to be the chosen people of God and had followed God's instruction to mark off their identity with the external ritual of male circumcision. This sign was meant to distinguish them as the chosen nation of God. And yet since then, Jesus had come. And Jesus had told Jews and Gentiles alike, not too uncommon or dissimilar from Deuteronomy 10 that we read earlier, that what was really needed was not a circumcision of the body, but a replacement of the heart. He had counseled his disciples that what he was doing could not be patched on to the old systems of Jewish religion with its ceremonies and sacrifices. No, Jesus was coming to do something new. Something that would certainly be explained through the old, but that would in many ways sort of eclipse it. Jesus's kingdom in Acts is breaking into new territory with the Gentiles. But the church in Jerusalem, largely Jewish background Christians, are struggling with the implications of that. Yes, the Gentiles are experiencing God's work among them. But could people really be included in God's kingdom if they weren't part of the nation of Israel? In Acts 15 through sixteen five, we watch the church grapple with this question. And with God's help, they do it well. Jews and Gentiles, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, will agree on what is core to their identity and what is not. Now, as we read through this, you may find that all this language about circumcision and laws and Jew and Gentile distinctions may at first read to you seem so distant from us as to be irrelevant, which I understand. After all, these first century conversations do not feature very much in our daily lives, do they? Fair enough. But underneath here Are some age-old principles still very applicable to the 21st century church? Principles that when followed will make our church stronger. There are three scenes that will unfold in Acts 15 and into the beginning of 16. First will be the handling of the issue about circumcision and salvation in verse 1 through 35. Then there will be a disagreement between Paul and Barnabas... In verse 36 to 41. And then finally, Paul will choose to take Timothy with him on his journey and circumcise him. In chapter 16, 1 through 5. And if you look closely, you'll see that every section concludes with a comment about how the church was strengthened through each situation. Look at verse 32. After grappling with the issue of circumcision and salvation... Verse thirty-two: Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. Then look down at verse forty-one. After the issue between Paul and Barnabas, and 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 uh, sorry, uh, verse thirty-nine: there arose a sharp disagreement. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And then verse 5, chapter 16. After the the issue with Timothy, look at verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith. And they increased in numbers daily. So we are going to examine this dynamic that's going on this morning looking to see how each of these situations gets handled and how that contributes to the health of the church. There are three principles that I want to draw out. First, we must all agree on the major thing. We must all agree on the major thing. Second, we will not always agree on the minor things. Third, the minor things should serve the major thing. The minor things should serve the major thing. So the first principle, we must all agree on the major thing. Let's read starting in verse 6 to see how the church dealt with this question. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers... You know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it's written after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So this conversation about circumcision had become a major thing or about a major thing when Judean men and the Pharisees suggest that it was necessary for salvation for a person to know that they are a Christian so major that even if it could be recognized publicly That someone had received the Holy Spirit. They still could not be part of the people of God. Unless going through that physical act. You not only had to be in their mind Christian. You had to be in some distinct way Jewish. Now keep in mind. That the number of Gentile converts has already. Or may or may be about to outpace that of Jewish Christians. When the apostles and elders convene in Jerusalem to discuss this, there is the potential for some serious partisan infighting. The Jews could represent the institutional party, the Gentiles, the up-and-coming religious movement. Both could have forced the issue to division, and the Gentile sympathizer may have been just as prepared to do that as a Jewish sympathizer. Had this whole thing gone a different way. It could have seriously divided the church. In the midst of the discussion. And the meeting that happens. There are three apostolic voices. That speak. Peter. In verse 6 through 11. Paul. In verse 12. And James. In verse 13 to 21. Peter speaks to what God has been doing among the Gentiles as evidence that salvation has already come to them from God through grace. So circumcision is a moot point. Paul gives eyewitness testimony to God's salvation among the Gentiles. And James, citing Old Testament prophetic text, Amos 9, observes that this Gentile inclusion was always part of God's redemption plan. Interestingly, none of these apostolic voices mentioned circumcision, except indirectly. Yes, that was the main aspect of the men from Judea. That was the thing they wanted to attach to salvation and to debate. But as Peter and James and Paul view God's work and God's word circumcision it seems to be so far out of the picture so as not to even be worth mentioning. What is in view to them is what is most essential, which is what Peter summarizes in verse 11. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Peter combines we, the Jews, and they, the Gentiles, under one single heading, the new people of God, being those who are characterized by faith alone, through Christ alone, by his grace alone. And this new identity, then they understand, must carry over and shape a new practice, which is James's contribution to the discussion. And the conclusion of the letter that they send. Look at verse 28 and 29. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. To lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood. What has been strangled from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So Gentiles do not need this council to write to them to prove that they're saved by doing what Jews do. (laughs) They simply need to do what Christians do. In their context, coming out of pagan idolatry, the way out of that slavery and bondage and darkness into the kingdom of light and the way of obedience to Christ was for them to walk away from pagan idolatry in all its practices and walk now according to the spirit of God. That's why the four things that they write about and express specifically speaking to these Gentiles and what it looks like to obey Christ coming out of idolatry. The apostles and the elders all deliberately minimize the subject of circumcision so as to clearly communicate it is just not a thing when it comes to what it means to be God's people. Might it have cultural importance among the Jews? Sure. Might it still act in some way as a distinguishing mark of a people group? I guess. But would it now have intrinsic significance to identifying who are God's people? No. That is now the role of the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of his regenerative work in obedient hearts. That have been made new. And clean by the grace of Jesus Christ. If there was any question lingering before the Jerusalem council. About what constitutes salvation. There simply cannot be afterwards. When it came to receiving salvation from God. It no longer matters if you are Jew or Gentile. If you are circumcised or uncircumcised. If you have a background in religious activities. Going to pagan temples or to synagogues. What mattered was if you had received grace from the Lord, repented of your former way of living, turned in trust in Christ for forgiveness, and desired to walk in the way of holiness as led by the Holy Spirit. And that is still what matters most. That's what matters most to you. And for you to hear if you are not walking according to the way of Christ this morning. If you have not given your life to his lordship and his control, you need to hear that salvation for your eternal soul can only come through the gracious work of Jesus. Through him willingly taking on our human life, though he was the son of God, coming and living perfectly where we have failed in every part, laying on himself the guilt of our sin that would have deserved the just wrath of God on the cross on himself. Taking that penalty for us. Dying in our place. Rising in victory over our sin and our curse. And granting to us the ability to walk out with him in newness of life. There is no other way by which men, women, or children can be saved. But by the gospel of Jesus and his grace. Kids, what matters most? Coming to church, does that matter most? Being a good person, does that matter most? Pleasing your parents, getting good grades? No, these do not matter most. You need Jesus and I need Jesus to give us grace to change our hearts. That's what matters most. Church, what matters most being church members, having a reverent approach to music and occasionally clapping, making sure we have a shared political agenda, tangible ministry achievements. No, it is this that we have been saved by grace through Christ and this not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Beware any tendency we might have to identify ourselves on some basis that is less important than the gospel. Our belief in this essential doctrine and its implications are fundamental to understanding who we are. We are the people of Grace. No longer under the law. Our salvation comes through God's choice. Not through our meritorious obedience. And to change those elements out. Is to fundamentally change our identity. We cannot add to this. Because then it completely undermines. That salvation is all a work of God. There's so much here in Acts 15. To think about together. Which, I apologize, we just won't get to this morning. If you're wondering, I'm not going to do a full treatment on whether or not this passage is a template for Presbyterian church government. My short answer is, it's not. I'm not going to do a deep dive in why the Old Covenant sign of circumcision should not be pulled into the conversation about New Covenant baptism. But it shouldn't. Instead... The gospel of Christ's grace is the major thing I want us to see this morning. Keeping the gospel of grace as supreme in our thinking and in our interactions will strengthen our church. Even if we differ on other points, we must agree on keeping to agreeing on this. This is what God has done. This is what God has said. Notice. Just as the apostles were quick to dismiss the idea that Jesus was building his church on the back of Jewish nationalism. So too, must we be quick to discourage the idea that American citizenship is core to our identity as Christians. You and I are more fundamentally united to an Iranian or a Pakistani or a Somalian or Russian Christian than we are to the Kansas City Chiefs fan next door that doesn't know the gospel. And our common identity as those who have received grace becomes the common bond that unites us in faith and practice as church members. If Christ died for our sin, then we help each other die to sin and live to righteousness. If God shows mercy to us that we don't deserve it, then we show the same grace to each other. If the Holy Spirit shows no partiality in saving Jew or Gentile, then we, by his help, exhibit a consistent love to each other, regardless of how different we might be otherwise. Now, imagine being part of the group of Gentiles in Antioch who send away Paul and Barnabas and eagerly await an answer. There was probably a fair amount of wondering going on about what kind of answer would come back. Would their brothers in Christ show an ethnic bias over the gospel? Would there be cold indifference or sympathy? Finally, the answer comes in verse 30 to 35. The letter is read. It contains affirmation that the gospel should and does remain at the core of Christ's church. This is what unites us all in Christ, not anything else. The gospel living and the the desire to do that together seeks to put all our old lives of sin behind us. And we do that in tandem with one another. Everyone, Jew and Gentile, can be encouraged with this result. And in this commonality gospel missions and gospel ministry can continue to thrive. This is what gospel unity does. This is why we must continue to agree on the gospel. But we should not expect that agreement on the gospel leads to agreement on everything, which leads to the second principle of this text. We won't always agree on minor things. Look at verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with him John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with him one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers through the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Man, look at this A, a huge win for gospel unity. And even as Paul and Barnabas start to strategize about how they'll take the letter abroad in this news to encourage the church, they come to an impasse over a disagreement. That is really important to notice. When you link arms with other Christians for gospel ministry in a church, you are not signing up for a completely frictionless experience. Just like when you get married. You don't vow that you'll love each other only when you agree. Gospel unity is the context in which we work through our disagreements with Christ-given love and spirit-empowered understanding. So Barnabas, who is related to John Mark, suggests that they bring John Mark along. But Paul recalls a previous chip, which you can read about in Acts 12 and 13, in which John Mark bailed. For some reason, that isn't quite clear. But whatever had happened, Paul thought that it meant they couldn't trust John Mark to not do it again. But Barnabas disagrees. Barnabas feels maybe that John Mark had either matured since then or had legitimate reasons to have left them before. And it shouldn't preclude him from joining them this time. Whatever it was, here are two godly men motivated by gospel ends having a serious disagreement. So much so that the resolution of the matter is that they decide to split up. Now, this is clearly not a gospel issue. As both Paul and Barnabas remain committed to the spread of God's word and the building up of the church from this point forward. And this wasn't a relationship ending disagreement. It didn't cut to the core of what it meant to be part of God's people. So remember... Not every major disagreement is necessarily that we feel we have is necessarily over a major issue. We might just feel strongly about a something that is, in fact, a minor thing. So here are a few things to keep in mind as we navigate our differences inside our church and our differences with friends at other churches that believe the same gospel that we do. Let's start with disagreements we may have with other churches. We can disagree with other churches on church practice and still enjoy partnership in the gospel. We don't think scripture teaches that infants should be baptized, but I am happy to know that Redeemer Presbyterian church and the Anglican church here that preaches the gospel is doing just that, that we hold it as most important together. That all of us who are in heaven one day will all be there for the same reason. Because Christ died to save us and show us his grace. So we can disagree with other churches on church practice and still enjoy gospel partnerships. We can also disagree with members of other churches and maintain gospel friendships. At times Christians in this church. And this has already happened will decide to leave this church and join another church here in Kansas City. And this could be for a whole host of reasons. Maybe they live far from us and closer to another church. Maybe they think that they would align more with the practices of another church. Them leaving us for non-gospel reasons does not mean we have to stop being friends. We still have Christ in common. And we can still enjoy that in ongoing friendship. We can still be friends with people who leave us saying they don't believe the gospel anymore. And hope that God will use that relationship to bring them one day to saving faith. But what about our disagreements inside our church? Three thoughts on that from this text. First, disagreements will commonly happen over the best way to do things. This is perhaps the tension you will at times feel as a member who isn't in a leadership role. The songs we sing might not be your jam. The way we do ministry might not be structured enough or it might be too structured. A recommendation on how the church stewards its resources might not include what you think is important. These kinds of disagreements happen in congregations of 25 people and in congregations of 525 people. And so we should expect they're going to happen in this congregation of 131 people. If you have strong opinions that we should do something differently. First examine if it's central to what it means to be a Christian or a Christian church. If it is, please come talk to me or another one of the elders in this church about that as soon as you can. If it isn't, prayerfully consider if you need to have a conversation about that with a pastor. And if so, how to do it in a way that demonstrates that agreement isn't necessary for gospel unity. And I just want to commend so many of you for already doing this. I do not think that this is something that requires some sort of different action than what you're already doing. I mean this to be an encouragement in the way you're already going. You have shown with us as elders a desire to walk with us in unity that preserves the gospel. And seeks to talk openly and honestly about where we may even disagree. You've done it charitably and humbly. You've done it lovingly and graciously. And pastors. Just because members might disagree with our recommendations. Does not mean they aren't committed to Christ and his gospel. We must continue to uphold Christ's grace in the way we make it clear that we don't think we know all the answers or have it all right. Church, your leaders welcome your feedback and your input as ways God will strengthen our leadership and our church. Second, second thing to remind us of for disagreements inside our church, the church... Should be the ideal arena in which to navigate our disagreements. If we share Christ's grace. Then we can share where we differ without fear of reprisal. We can hold strong opinions. While mutually maintaining a strong grip on Jesus as our only hope. Paul and Barnabas both both would put their lives on the line for the gospel. And they disagreed. I doubt either questioned the other's commitment to Jesus. They just felt like there were good enough reasons to question the other person's advice on what to do with John Mark. What will navigating this well look like in our church? Well, basically, if we find we disagree on minor things, that is things not essential to gospel belief and practice, then we will not allow those disagreements to diminish our love for each other. We we will ask God to help us see. That there is a strength in the bonds of Christ. To look at a brother or a sister. Who shares a different opinion than me. And sees loads of room for grace. Love and understanding between us. Third. We can disagree and divide. And God can use that to make stronger churches. Did you notice that. Paul and Barnabas wind up up in different places. What do you think they're doing in those different places? Spreading the gospel. Strengthening the church. Encouraging people in Christ's grace. Where they were going to go together. Now they've gone apart. And ministry has been multiplied. We do not all have to become or remain members of Warner Road Baptist Church until the end of time for Christ's kingdom to advance. Sometimes people will leave us over non-gospel reasons like Barnabas did with Paul and Paul with Barnabas. And just like God did through their disagreement, God will sovereignly do it with ours. Maybe intentionally so. Probably intentionally so. Definitely intentionally so. And just like he does there. He will use our separation as a means to take us to other places and other churches where we can be used to support gospel ministry in such a way that leads to two churches being strengthened instead of just one. May we never, ever be turfy or territorial about how important we think our church is to the kingdom of Jesus. If we are agreed And as long as we are members here, we pray Christ is praised through our unity. And if we should disagree and divide, we pray for those who go to be useful instruments in the advance of Christ's kingdom elsewhere. Let's continue to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us as we expect to encounter minor minor disagreements ahead. And as we do. One more principle for us to consider. Third, the minor things should serve the major thing. Look at chapter 16. As I read verse 1 to 5. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on the way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So ironically, Even though the passage opens with this big feature on circumcision. This is actually the first time circumcision gets mentioned. After its initial mention. Paul, who debated strongly against circumcising Gentiles for salvation. Now proactively initiates it with Timothy. The son of a mixed Gentile Jew marriage. Paul apparently anticipates there being pushed back in Jewish regions. Where they're headed to deliver the letter from Jerusalem. Precisely over the issue of circumcision. He assumes that Timothy's lack of circumcision, even though he is the son of a Jew, will create an obstacle to the Jewish listeners that they're going to. So, what does Paul do? Does he go anyway, saying that they'll just have to get over it and get with the program? No. He removes the obstacle. To be clear, Paul is not doing this because he changed his mind about the importance of circumcision for salvation. No, that's exactly why Paul is going to deliver this letter that reinforces that only Christ's grace is necessary for salvation. And because Paul knows circumcision is nothing when it comes to salvation, he feels free to allow it to have a lesser priority by having Timothy do it rather than not do it. Paul's prioritizing people hearing and understanding what truly is salvation is most important in his mind. Paul so cares about the health and strengthening of the church that he doesn't want a lesser thing to override his ability to emphasize and encourage the church in holding to the major thing, the gospel of grace. So Paul has Timothy forego his rights to not get circumcised for the sake of the gospel. The same thing Paul did everywhere he went. By choosing to work as a tent maker and, forgo, and, and choosing to forego his right to receive payment for his work. In an effort and a hope that the gospel would not be confused with the message of greedy false teachers around Paul. So the minor thing, circumcision, ends up being employed for the service of the major thing. The spread of the true gospel and the strengthening of the church. And while Paul obviously felt this was the right approach, I'm sure he would have agreed that Timothy did not need to get circumcised in any gospel sense. So, does this mean that we should employ any means we can think of to share the gospel with people? I don't think so. If you are so desirous to see people saved that you want to find any way possible to do that, I commend your heart and desire. That's wonderful. But let's make sure that we are going about it in God's way and not our own. Let's think about how our methods of evangelism would bear on what the person is hearing from us. If we share the gospel with hyper emotional communication, we might even though we don't intend to communicate that salvation is a spiritual feeling instead of a whole life allegiance to the Lordship of Christ. Or if we make our worship services primarily an evangelistic event to draw in non-Christians, we could very well distort God's purpose for the gathering of of believers together and our lives together in holiness with the Lord if we have shared with our mouths that Jesus Christ in grace dies and rises to save sinners, and if we encourage people to respond to that good news in faith and repentance, then we do not need to worry if it feels like our methods are too plain and the immediate response is too, well, unexciting. The power for salvation is in the message we preach, not the methods we use. This last section reminds us, That the principle of love for our brothers and sisters should balance our view of our personal liberties. Perhaps this is the very situation Paul thinks about when he encourages the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 12 to bear with the weaker brother or sister on matters of the conscience. Just because we're free to do something as Christians does not always mean it's the best thing to do for the sake of Christians around us. Before inviting others to participate in the freedoms you feel you can enjoy with a clear conscience, consider whether or not that will help or hurt them. The language we use, the movies we watch, the substances we drink, the way we use our leisure time. Might there be a reason to abstain from those when others around you disagree so as to shore up your gospel unity that you have together. Agree on the major thing. This section shows us that's what we must do. We need to know though, what is major and minor and know what to do when they intersect. I think acts 15, 1 through sixteen five gives us a, a helpful system for triaging that thing, that dynamic. When we encounter an issue that involves major and minor things, what should we do? We should agree on the major thing, work through the disagreements we have on minor things, and seek to have the minor things work in service to the main thing. This means we're going to need to know the difference between gospel principles and other personal preferences. Am I willing to give up my preferences for the cause of a greater gospel principle? Are you? And we could take those questions into our church relationships. We could take them into our marriages and our friendships too. We're about to come to the Lord's Supper. So while we're on the topic of agreements and disagreements, are there any barriers between you and another church member right now? And are those disagreements for major things or minor? Will it be hard for you to eat and drink in light of Christ's death because you've sinned or been sinned against? That is a major thing. That is a major thing because this is why Christ's body was broken for us and his blood shed. I'd encourage you to forgive and reconcile so that we can enjoy gospel agreement at the table. But maybe you have a hard time coming to the table with another brother or sister because of minor disagreements maybe an offense should be overlooked or a difference of opinion that has caused some relational friction should be set aside perhaps you are bothered that another person doesn't agree with you on minor things instead of seeing the opportunity to encourage them by our mutual presence about around the table of Christ's grace before we all come to the table let's make sure the gospel is still major And when we do that, we will see that those other lesser things are opportunities for love and service that will serve our greater unity in Jesus Christ. I'm going to conclude. God's work and the guidance of the Holy Spirit enabled the church to get stronger through agreement, disagreement, and things indifferent. We would hope the same for our culture at large. But without the gracious work of the gospel to change us, we shouldn't hold out hope that we can be truly one over lesser things. After seeing what the church dealt with in these early days, we might wish we could make a church rule book for every situation we might encounter. We can't do that. But we can see one commonality. In each of these areas, in agreement, disagreement, and things indifferent, The gospel has a clarifying and directing impact. It was the North star that set the early church's course on a path of gospel agreement. And because of that, the church grew stronger and just as it was for the church in the first century. So it will be for our church in the 21st century. Let's pray. Lord, because your word has been opened And even in human weakness, we trust has been brought forth by power in your Holy Spirit and is now being communicated and and will continue to be communicated to our hearts. We trust that you have things to teach us, things to learn, things to respond to. We trust that there is discouragement that can be helped by your encouragement. We trust that there is disagreements that can be worked through. According to the gospel of your grace. Lord we pray for those kinds of outcomes. From the preaching of your word. Lord in light of the table. That we come to now. And how it shows us the unity. That has been purchased for us. By the blood and body of Jesus. We pray that we would not make anything. Major. That should be minor. And that we would not move on. On. From that which is most important to us. The gospel of Christ's grace. Remind us of it now at the table we pray. Encourages us in it. And for those who do not know it may even this. Be a witness to them. Of how they might find grace from Jesus Christ. We ask in his name. Amen.